We're going to look at a passage in Luke chapter 22 in our normal rhythm. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and for August, we're going to pause, and we're going to do a series where we focus on prayer and spiritual renewal. And so what I want you to think about today, last week we looked at a a story in Mark, Mark chapter 9, where a father brings his son to the disciples, and the son is demon-possessed, and the disciples can't help him. They can't cast the demon out, and they fail publicly, spectacularly. And then when they get alone with Jesus, they say, why couldn't we cast the the, the demon out? And Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer. And what they have to learn is they have to learn to differentiate between case by case. And there are certain situations, there are certain cases that you'll encounter that can only be dealt with by prayer. So that's what we're going to wrestle with this month. And we're going to look at one uh, for the next couple weeks because we're actually going to look at an interesting case. And it's the case of Peter and Peter's denial and Peter's betrayal of Jesus and Peter's fall. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. And as you uh, turn there and we kind of think about this concept, I want you to think about this, uh, this question. Um, Who is the real you? Like, who's the real you? You know, the Olympics are wrapping up, and this is one of our favorite sporting events as a family. And, of course, the big story of these Olympics was Simone Bile uh, withdrawing from the uh, gymnastics competition. And it kind of brought to the forefront athletes wrestling with mental health issues. And so it became a question, like, who's the real Simone Biles? Is it the one who is explosively twisting through the air and doing things we've never seen before in the world? Or is it the one so paralyzed with fear and anxiety that she can't even perform some of the basic, well, not basic to any of us, but basic to Olympic gymnast movements. If you heard, like Michael Phelps came on and was speaking very strongly in support of her and says, you know, most people don't, uh, don't understand the weight we're under. And he talked about his own wrestlings with depression and paralyzing fear of anxiety and substance abuse. And it's like, all right, well, who's the real Michael Phelps? Is it the one of the iconic image of, you know, f- flexing and exploding in celebration as he's just done something that no athlete's ever done in human history? Or is the real Michael Phelps the one who's so paralyzed by fear and anxiety he hadn't gotten out of bed for two days? You know, who's the real one? Or to kind of bring it down from the realm of elite athletes, you know, who's the real you? You know, is the real you the one who um, everything on the to-do list is checked off, the dishes are done, the laundry's put away, and the kids are in bed, and it's 7.30? I mean, you're mother of the year, father of the year? Or is the real you the one who you walk into the living room and it looks like a bomb went off and the kids are running around with toothpaste stuck in their hair and it's 9.30? Now, who's the real you? Is the real you the one where the problem is solved and the project is completed and everything is just smooth and harmonious? Or is the real you the one who has no idea what to do and doesn't know how to move forward? The confident, the successful you or the frustrated and the failing you? And then how do you deal with the gap you know, in between the two you's? You're the gap between you as successful and you as failure. How do you deal with that gap? How do you deal with the gap between kind of what you have expressed and then what you actually, you know, experience? Or your aspirations and what's actual? Your expectations and your experience? And it's not just how do we deal with that gap in our own life, in our own hearts, 
It's how do we deal with that gap in our world? Like, how do you deal with the gap when you become awakened to the fact that there's this gap between the aspirations the country was founded on and then the actuality of people's experience? How do you deal with that gap? How do you deal with it when you come to work at a certain place and then you see the amazing, you know, mission statement and vision and values and it looks so wholesome and so wonderful. And then after a few months, you realize, ah, pretty big gap between what's expressed and then what I've actually experienced. You know, how do you deal with that gap? Who's the real you? Who's the real, what's the real world like? And we're actually going to look at Peter's case because what Peter finds himself in a position where he is forcefully confronted with the, the Grand Canyon size gap in between what he um, expresses, his aspirations, who he says he is, and then who he actually proves to be. So let's look at Luke 22. We're going to pick up the story in verse 31, and then we're just going to key in on the next couple weeks, really just meditate and dwell in verse 31 and 32. Start in verse 31. Simon, Simon, look out, watch. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, or it's a strong word. Satan has demanded you to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail And you, when you have turned back or when you rise, strengthen your brothers. But Lord, Peter said, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. And go down to 54. Then they seized him and led him away, talking about Jesus, and brought him to the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. And they lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. And Peter sat among them. And then a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him. And she said, this man was with him too. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. Then after a little while, someone else saw him and said, you are one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him. He's a Galilean. Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word that the Lord had said about him. Before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. So there's three things we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at how Satan's sifting, Jesus is praying, and then faith that's not failing. And so we'll begin today as we look at this story just thinking about Satan sifting because what we have here is Satan is going to sift Peter, which is a, a, a farming metaphor of taking wheat and you shake it to separate the wheats from the shaft. So what he wants to do is take him and he wants to shake him, shake up his whole world in such a way that it causes his faith to fail. And even as I read through it, don't you know just a couple interesting things about this? It's interesting, isn't it? Why does Jesus call him Simon? For that's his old name. Hadn't Jesus renamed him to Peter? Why does he say it twice? Simon, Simon. Why does Jesus specifically single him out? Well, we'll look at next week. Notice Jesus' response. I've prayed for you. He might be thinking if Peter's old. Great. Uh, That's it? That's all you're going to do? Maybe there's some other things you could do to help. Why does he say, I've prayed for you? That your faith won't fail. 
And then when you rise. So let's look at that first little phrase, Satan's sifting. That Satan is going to take him and sift him. He wants to shake him. And that sifting, there's a couple different ways. There's echoes here of how Satan attacks Job. And there's a couple different ways Satan will sift you. He'll shake you, try to break you. He can do it by trying to break your health like he does with Job. Trying to break your family. But here he's going to do something that he will do to all of us at some point. He's going to force you into a situation where you have to face the reality of the gap between who you want to be and who you actually are, who you ex- what you express and what you um, experience and make him face who's the real you. You when you're strong or successful or fragile and failing. But I think it's worth pointing out, just remind ourselves as we begin, you know, the sifting, who's going to do it? He says, Satan is, has asked, has demanded to sift you. And you can look in the beginning of chapter 22, Verse 3, where it says Satan had already entered into Judas Iscariot. And so you see that behind the scenes that there's this, this enemy, this serpent who's lurking, who's in the background, who's weaving in and out and creating dissension and disaster. And he's already entered into Judas. And it's not surprising that he wants to go after Peter. You know, who, why Peter? Why go after him? There's an interesting dynamic. In one sense, this is where we really need the, the Southern Standard Version. Because Jesus tells him, he says, you know, Satan has demanded to sift y'all. He's coming after all y'all. He's already got Judas, but he wants all y'all. But I have prayed for you. It's interesting. Satan's coming after all of them. And Jesus has specifically prayed for Peter. So why does he, why is he going after Peter first? So Peter is the, you know, he was the first to be called. He was the first to confess that Jesus was the Christ. You know, he was the first to step out of the boat and walk on water, often the first to rise up and speak. And I think he knows if he can, if he can destroy Peter, he'll get all of them, but he wants all of them. And it's important to remember that Satan is never satisfied. He never stops. He's always greedy for more. He's already got Judas. Now he wants Peter and he won't stop till he gets all of them. And if you're a disciple of Christ, you fall into that y'all. He wants all y'all. He's coming after every one of you. And he's going to start with you, but he wants all of them. And this is why he slithered into the garden to bring down Adam and Eve. And this is why he tempted Cain uh, to kill his brother Abel. And it's why he was able to keep them paralyzed in bondage in Egypt. It explains why he was going across the earth to target Job. So when Peter, years later can say that, you know, we have to be prepared because our adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He knows because he's experienced it firsthand himself. He's always ravenous and he wants all y'all. And do we realize how he's coming after? Do you realize to what degree that there's so much more going on in our world than just the things that we all know are going on in our world? That there's a very active devil that's trying to make your faith fail. He wants your family to fail. He wants this church to fail. This community to fail. Our society to fail. And he wants all y'all. He's coming and he's going after him in that moment. That's worth pausing. Do we often recognize the danger that we're in? And you can see it in the way he loves to celebrate when... 
You know, a teenager goes off to college the first time and use, or goes off to college, uses that opportunity to run away from her faith. Or the family that decides the extracurricular activities on the weekend are much more important than church and they go away and their faith fails. He wants them. He's going after them. And it's worth thinking about. There's more wrong with the world than the things that we caused. That actually can be kind of encouraging. I was listening to some old, old tapes not on tapes, they've been put on MP3s. It was Eugene Peterson talking on tape from uh, 1988. And he was actually talking about different things. And he made this side comment about the fall because the Berlin Wall had just fallen. And he was talking about the fall of communism. And he said, you know, we, all, you know, we here kind of in America will say that communism fell because they didn't believe in God. Because I wonder if their real problem is they didn't believe in the devil. Because you actually look, and he said every single thing they were wanting to do in many ways at the beginning was well-intended. The problem is they couldn't account for the real nature of evil, but it all started with good aspirations and good intentions. You look, and they were obsessed with justice. They were utterly committed to creating a world in which there was full equality and no inequity. They had a very clearly defined enemy, you know, the capitalist bourgeois person who's created these inequities. It's very obvious this is who it is, and had a very clear strategy for eliminating them. So everything they did were well intended, but not realizing just how Satan hijacks and takes over good intentions and then will destroy people through the actions. It was all well intended. And you can see in Peter, his claim, his boast. Uh, I love Phil Riken says, this is, the, this is the titanic of all claims. <laughs> Big and strong and proud and very quickly it is about to crash. And he says, Peter is about to fail uh, repeatedly three times. He's about to fail in, intentionally, and he's about to fail just openly. It's this big claim, this aspiration. And we shouldn't kind of roll our eyes. I mean, this is who Peter wants to be. This is who he thinks he is. I am the one. I am strong. I am the right. If anybody else falls away, it won't be me. He's very well intended. And then Satan takes those, hijacks him, turns him against him, and causes him to fail. And that's what the sifting does. The whole goal of the sifting is to make your faith fail, to expose the gaps, that gap in between who you think you are and who you really are. And there's a couple different ways we can respond when we see that exposed. Like when we see it exposed in ourselves, we can ignore one or the other. We can become discouraged or depressed. Um, when we see it in others, like in society and other places, we can become cynical or jaded. So how do you deal with the gaps? You know, one thing to think about is the way this fracturing, what it causes for Peter. Do you notice what kind of happens to Peter is there's two things that these gaps can cause. They can cause it, you to have an identity that's fractured where you don't know who you are, and then it can cause your community to fracture. I mean, notice how it fractures Peter. You know, it's the real question, like, who's the real Peter? Is the real Peter the confident, bold one who stands and says, I will stand with you? And just a minute, there's people who come, and he's one of the first to pull out the sword and attack to defend. Is that the real Peter? Is the real Peter the confident one who claims you are the Christ? And Jesus blesses him, and he follows him, and he says, look, we've left everything to follow you. We're sold out. We're dedicated. Is that the real one? Or is the real one the one who pretends and then curses and claims that he doesn't know him. You know, what's the real you? And of course, if we're honest, we know they're both the real us. 
And that's one of the reasons it's so problematic because in our culture, it just encourages us to, you know, you, you be you, you do you, follow the real you. Well, the challenge is who actually is the real you? Is the real you, the you at the most successful, the strongest, the most competent, or you at the most frailing and fat, fragile? Who's the real you? But see, after this moment, Peter doesn't know. He doesn't know anymore. That's why he goes out and he weeps bitterly because he actually doesn't know who's the real me. So it doesn't just break our own sense of self, our identities. They also fracture communities. You know, when you see, when you enter in a community and you see that gap, you can become real cynical. You can become jaded. You can uh, become accusatory, like, oh, that's the real you. You're this or you're, you're that. That's who you really are. And communities can get fractured. You know, it's very interesting, the dynamic. Peter's fall is not just going to affect him. It's going to affect everyone. And then his rise is not just going to affect him. It's going to affect everyone. But as you think about this, here's an example of Peter. He's sifted because he's not living up to his own expectations or aspirations. So how are you doing? Are you living up to your own expectations or your own aspirations? Do you feel torn between the two? Is there one or the two that you're much more aware of in your own life? Is there one of the two that you're much more aware of in the life of others and those around you? You know, Cynthia, before um, we had children, she taught, taught uh, first and second grade. And you know, as we're getting school, getting back up, running again, you know, one of the things that she would do is she would very intentionally in her class, she would try and um, get very specific on the evidences of grace that she would see in her first grade, her class of first graders. And to be honest, some classes were much harder than others to discern these evidences of, of grace. And then what she would do throughout the year, like for the first parent teacher conference, you know, the parents come in and this scene normally kind of played out this way. I mean, normally it would be the mom would come in just feeling haggard and worn. And especially with the little boys, I think they're bouncing all over the walls. I am failing every moment as a parent. And then what Cynthia would do is highlight something, some element of, of strength and grace and beauty that she's seen in the child. And she would hold it up for the parents to see. And there'd be um, most at times, many of the parents would just almost break down and start crying. Like, yes, that's really true. You know, he's not just a lewd who bounces all over the walls. He really has wonderful leadership qualities that people do follow him. And he is compassionate and gracious in this way. It's really true. And what had happened, they'd been so kind of, uh, the, the world was spinning in such a way where they had fixated on just these things and weren't seeing these things. So which is the real you? Are you fixated on one or the other? Or maybe you're living in an environment where you recognize there's a gap. How do you respond to that gap? You know, one of my favorite lines is that you begin to become an adult when you realize your parents weren't perfect. There was a gap. You actually become one when you forgive them for it. And so how do you respond when you see that gap in yourself and others? And then what does Jesus do? All right, so how does Jesus help bring Peter about to a point of restoration? Because you follow Peter's character arc, you know, now he's down low. He recognizes there's this giant gap between who he wants to be and who he is. And he goes out, he weeps bitterly. He's, he's a wounded and broken man. But you follow the character arc and he doesn't stay that way. 
By the end of the Gospel of John, he's renewed and restored and he's back up on his feet. And by the end, we get to Acts 12 and there's this remarkable man of incredible boldness who has so much poise and so much confidence. He can be put in prison and the night before he's about to be executed, he can have so much internal peace and calm. He is asleep. Now, I don't know how you'll respond if you are ever going to be thrown in prison and you have one night to live. I don't know if you could sleep like a baby. But there he is because he has so much peace and calm and poise. How do you get there? And what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't just pray for him in this chapter. We see Jesus bleeding for him. He dies for him. It's not just the intercession of Jesus that restores and renews Peter. It's also the atonement of Jesus. The death, he died. And you can look in a couple verses in verse 37 and 22, Jesus is trying to explain what's going to happen. And he has this verse, he says, for I tell you that the scriptures must be fulfilled in me. And that he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has to be fulfilled. So he takes them back and he says, all right, what's going to happen is so much more than Um, What you're seeing, something, there's a promise that has to be fulfilled. See, Peter became fractured because he made a promise and then broke it, and that broke him. And then what we're going to see, that Jesus on the cross, he actually makes a promise, keeps it, and it breaks him so that all the broken can be put back together again. See, Jesus is actually referencing here promises that were made in that magnificent chapter in Isaiah chapter 53, where in Isaiah 53, God promises that the Savior would be despised and rejected. God promises that the Savior would carry the people's sorrows. He promises that the Savior would be wounded for our transgressions and that the Savior would be crushed for our iniquities. He promises that the Savior is going to be led like a lamb to the slaughter and then buried in a rich man's tomb and that the Savior would make intercession to save sinners and that before he died, he would be numbered with the transgressors. And when Jesus read those promises, he knew those were promises about him. And what he's telling all the disciples, those promises, even though they're so hard and difficult, I'm about to fulfill them. And the disciples have to make that connection. And what we see Jesus telling them, the only way that's going to be fulfilled, uh, even though Jesus is innocent of all the charges, he's going to be numbered among the transgressors. So at the end of the legal trials, he's going to be unjustly convicted of committing a capital crime. He's going to be taken to a place of execution and nailed down between two thieves. And that's what he came to do in their place. So I was reading this past week a letter that Martin Luther wrote to one of his uh, friends who was a monk. This was in 1520, and the monk was just really struggling with both. Uh, he was not living up to his own ideals. He wanted to be such. He wanted to be so much of a better Christian than he actually was. So he was struggling with that. And he was also struggling with the fact that he'd entered into this monastery and he thought it was going to be this place of just, you know, calm and serene holiness and everybody would just radiate with the joy of the Lord. And then he got there and found out, wow, people here are kind of, they're rude too. And people can be mean here too. And so he had this incredible gap between what he wanted for himself and what he was experiencing and what he thought his kind of work should be and what he was experiencing. 
And Luther's advice was, listen, here's his advice. He says, therefore, my dear brother, after they kind of walk through, he said, therefore, my dear brother, learn Christ, specifically the crucified. Learn to sing him and in your despair at yourself, say to him, you, Lord Jesus, are my righteousness. I, on the other hand, am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me as a gift what is yours. You took upon, your, you took upon yourself what you were not, and you gave me the gift of what I am not. He says, always remember, yes, there is a gigantic gap, and the only person that that gap doesn't exist is Christ. And he actually came to fulfill the gap for us. He's taken upon himself what he was not and given us what we were not. So in this passage, when Jesus says that he was numbered with the transgressors, it means so much more than he was simply regarded as a criminal. It means that on the cross, he takes upon himself all our sin in our place. He is, he is numbered. He is counted as a sinner so that by grace we can be counted as those who are righteous. He's counted as a sinner doing this saving work. So he's doing so much more for Peter than just praying for him. He's dying for him. You can even think in that moment, what kind of sinner was Peter this night? I mean, he was a denier. He was a promise breaker. And Jesus is being counted as the one who had denied, who had broken the promise. And so whatever sinner we happen to be, what we see is whatever gap exists in our own life, Jesus, um, whatever sinner we happen to be, he was counted as that kind of sinner on the cross, even though he wasn't. So in terms of God's justice, he died as the one who's lying, the one who's lazy, the one who's thieving. He died as the adulterer. He died as the idolater to fill that gap. And when we understand that's what he's done for us in our place, we can recognize that he's done so much more than just pray for us that our faith won't fail. He's died so that our faith won't fail. So maybe what we need to hear this morning is Luther's counsel, not just to his friend, but to all of us. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, learn Christ, specifically the crucified. Learn to sing about him. And in your deepest despair about yourself, in that moments where that gap becomes so obvious and you're so weighed down to it, say to him, you, Lord Jesus, are my righteousness. I, on the other hand, am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me the gift that is yours. You took upon yourself what you were not and gave me what I am not. So we take that and own that. And each week we come to the Lord's table because it's the symbolic reminder that every single week that great transfer, that great exchange has happened. He took upon himself. His body was broken so that ours could be put back together again. He poured out his blood so we could receive the life-giving joy uh, wine of the new covenant. And this is the Christian strategy for how you deal with that gap that you experience in your own life. So if you are a Christian this morning, are you using it? Are you using the gift that you have to deal with that, uh, that sifting? And if you're not this morning, what strategies do you have to make sense of these things? What strategies do you have to fill that gap? I mean, is your strategy just to ignore the one and celebrate the other? What strategies do you have? And we'll call all of us to come, come to the table and receive the place where our healing can be found.
So on the night that he died, he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this represents my body that was broken so you can be made whole. And then he took the cup and he said, this represents my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's the forgiveness of sins that's going to cover the gap between what you have expressed and what you want to be and who you know you really are. His forgiveness is found that fills that gap. So take in remembrance of me. Lord, we praise you for your grace and your mercy. We praise you that deep down you know who we really are in both all of our triumphs and our successes and our our joys and our victories. And you know who we really are in our frailty and our failings and our foolishness and our frustration. And we praise you that you love us anyway that you sent your son to bear upon himself, to be counted as transgressors, to bear the weight and the penalty of all of those uh, frustrations you took upon yourself on the cross, what you were not, which is all of our failings and all of our failures. And then you give us by your Holy Spirit, through your grace, through your gospel, what we are not, which is uh, a righteous, holy, and clean status to come into your presence so we can enter in as your sons and daughters. So we ask that you help us all to know that and to live in light of that beautiful and glorious truth. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this day, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.